This is Monday Morning QB, July 11th, 2022. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, we will cover a horrific police shooting in Akron, Ohio, and take a look at the Supreme Court's impact on the climate change fight. Plus, protests around abortion rights continue, and activists keep up the fight to restore the right to vote. All that and more. Stay with us. The American political landscape has been fundamentally reshaped in recent weeks by a series of Supreme Court decisions that have restricted access to abortions, struck down state gun laws, and loosened police accountability. One of the most recent decisions, issued June 30th, is West Virginia v. EPA, which focused on an Obama-era environmental rule. That rule, which never took effect after facing immediate legal challenges, sought to push operators of existing coal-fired power plants to make new investments in cleaner technology, namely natural gas or renewables. The Trump administration ultimately tossed the rule out in 2019, arguing that the Obama-era EPA had no authority under the Clean Air Act to mandate so-called generation-shifting from coal to cleaner sources. But legal challenges continued to wind through federal courts, repeating the argument of the Trump EPA that the agency was never delegated authority by Congress to enforce generation-shifting regulations to fight climate change. Tyson Slocum, director of the Energy Program at Public Citizen, says these challenges from the beginning overlooked the practicality of the original Obama-era rule. That rule, Slocum says, was developed intentionally to provide flexibility to the coal industry, offering compromises rather than blunt force regulatory instruments. It didn't matter, right? We live in an era where rational policy solutions are weaponized and used for campaign fodder by, you know, fossil fuel interests that aren't interested in coming up with moderate, you know, practical solutions, but instead are are interested in attacking any sort of reasonable solution as a communist conspiracy that is designed to destroy America values and jobs, blah, blah, blah. Using a legal concept called the Major Questions Doctrine, the Supreme Court said the EPA must have clear and specific authorization from Congress in order to pursue a regulation. The Clean Air Act, initially enacted in 1963 and amended a handful of times since, makes no particular allowance for the generation-shifting policy in the EPA rule. Slocum says the court's adherence to the major questions doctrine fails to recognize the regulatory expertise of the EPA specifically and will handcuff federal agencies broadly. So the court is basically saying unless Congress, you know, holds the agency's hand, the agency can't do anything. And and the reason that this is is so bad is that an agency like the EPA is filled with scientists and experts who have developed unique capabilities that Congress does not. And for decades, Congress has recognized that agencies have unique uh, specialist expertise and that it is impractical for Congress to be overly prescriptive because technologies change, circumstances change, the level of pollutants change. Our economy is dynamic and changes. And if Congress tries to come up with all the answers that it thinks might happen 20 or 50 years in the future, federal agencies won't have the ability to adapt as things go forward. Luckily, the Supreme Court affirmed in 2007 that the Clean Air Act does in fact empower the EPA to regulate pollutants harmful to public health. The law does not specify climate change, but Slocum says it should be interpreted to mean that the EPA has authority to regulate any health-harming pollutant, regardless of whether that chemical compound is specified. 
in that broad view, regulating carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases falls clearly under EPA jurisdiction. So what's important is, as radical and as stupid as the Supreme Court decision was last week, it doesn't end the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases, right? It just says, if you're going to regulate them, you've got to do it within these fairly narrow confines. So I don't think it's the end of the world. You know, it's obviously not the decision that we ideally wanted, but it means that the EPA can still go forward and try to come up with a regulatory uh, path. And, and at the end of the day, it's really going to come down to Congress coming up with more concrete solutions. And, and that's where, obviously, the roadblocks continue to exist. So what does this mean for the future of energy? Slocum says that coal-powered plants are already an outmoded technology, with natural gas and renewables beating coal on affordability, such that 95% of new power generation comes from renewable sources. In other words, the mythic invisible hand of the free market already has a thumb on the scales in favor of renewables over coal. But markets are not enough to accelerate the transition at the pace that the scientists tell us need to happen. And that's where regulation plays an important role. The Supreme Court is handcuffed the ability of the EPA to maximize flexibility to come up with those regulatory solutions. But it's not the end of the world. We still have tools in our toolbox, and it is going to be incredibly important for all the voters out there to make sure that we elect people that prioritize action on climate and to replace those members of Congress that continue to be mouthpieces for the fossil fuel interests. Slocum says a possibly unintended outcome of the Supreme Court ruling is that the compromise of the original EPA rule has been tossed out, counterintuitively promoting a harsher outcome for the country's few remaining coal plants. Plant operators won't have the option to comply with emission standards through generation-shifting investments, but instead may have to face blunt force rules that limit operational time and force costly efficiency upgrades. The irony here is now the only tool that the Supreme Court says the EPA has is to come down very hard on coal-fired power plants and to say, listen, coal-fired power plants are the most polluting source of energy that we've ever created. And the EPA has a duty and an obligation under the Clean Air Act to protect the American people from these harmful pollutants. And so the Supreme Court has given us no choice. Ultimately, the Supreme Court decision restricts the kinds of actions the EPA can make around coal plant emissions, at a time Slocum says we can't afford delays or inflexibility. But in the wake of the decision, some state leaders have stepped into the vacuum produced by federal inaction. On the day the court's ruling was released, Governors Kathy Hochul of New York, Jay Inslee of Washington, and Gavin Newsom of California issued a statement as co-chairs of the U.S. Climate Alliance, expressing deep disappointment and a hardened resolve. Quote, This ruling makes clear that the actions of governors and state legislatures are more important than ever before. Thankfully, state authority to curb greenhouse gas emissions has not changed, end quote. The statement points to existing commitments from the 24 governors in the alliance to achieve net zero emissions no later than 2050. Slocum says that, absent federal action, states are the last best hope. So the hope is that continued state leadership can sort of be the backdoor driver to national emission reductions. It's not the path that, that we would ideally choose, but you know, given the attacks by the fossil fuel industry, given the hijacking of American democracy by the fossil fuel industry, you know, this is a plan B that I think uh, can be effective. That's Tyson Slocum, director of the energy program at Public Citizen. You can follow him on Twitter at Tyson Slocum, or learn more about Public Citizen by visiting citizen.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bengert-Drowns.
The funeral for Jalen Walker is planned for this Wednesday in Akron, Ohio. Over the weekend, protesters continued to take to the streets, and not just in Akron. Demonstrators gathered to express their outrage in cities as far-flung as St. Louis, Missouri, and Jacksonville, Florida. Jalen Walker was a 25-year-old black man who was shot and killed by police in Akron, Ohio. That was on June 27th, but it wasn't until police released the video of the fatal event that people really began to take notice. Sue Goodwin reports. Seven days after Jalen Walker was killed by Akron City Police, city officials held a news conference to release police body camera videos of the shooting. Police said they tried to pull Jalen Walker over for a traffic and equipment violation, but he refused to stop and led police on a car chase. The videos show that he eventually stopped, exited the car, and fled on foot. At one point, he appeared to turn toward police, and the footage shows the moment eight police officers opened fire and shot at him an estimated 90 times. According to the medical examiner's report, Jalen Walker suffered over 60 bullet wounds. And even though police say they believe they saw a flash of gunfire within Walker's car while he was still inside it, they also made it clear he was unarmed at the time he was executed. After the videos were released, Jalen Walker's family held a press conference during which his lawyers expressed their sorrow and outrage at what they had just seen. This is Paige White, an attorney with the legal team representing the Walker family. And what we all just saw in that room is heartbreaking. What I'm here to say is that we are done dying like this, in this manner, with this fate. Nobody should ever suffer the fate that Jalen Walker did. Community leaders were quick to respond, and protests were quick to materialize. One of the people helping to lead protesters and the calls to justice is Reverend Ray Green, Jr. He is executive director of the Freedom Block. Block stands for Black-Led Organizing Collaborative. Here he describes to Democracy Now! what he saw watching video of police officers gunned down Jalen Walker. It's, it's very simple. Um, um, the video shows um, that a black man was spotted driving at night um, in an area he probably shouldn't have been spotted, uh, was profiled, was then chased um, and gunned down um, like he wasn't human at all. Um, any other narrative is a disgrace um, to what we've seen in the video. Um, what we've seen in the video is what I just described, um, an unarmed um, black man being chased and gunned down. Um, and that's the simple facts of the matter. For the most part, the protests that ensued were peaceful, but after several windows were broken, the city was quick to clamp down. About 50 protesters were arrested Sunday night, and a curfew from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. was established. It remains in place until further notice. What's more, a handful of protesters were tear-gassed Tuesday night outside of the Summit County Jail in Akron, Protesters had gathered outside the jail to show support for those detained in earlier protests. So, on Thursday, a group of activists held a news conference to demand accountability from Akron police and the right to protest on their own terms. Here again is Reverend Ray Green, Jr., Executive Director of the Freedom Block. The Department of Justice wants us to negotiate um, protest rules and regulations with the police. Our response to that is we have already negotiated how we will act based off the Constitution. The Constitution gives us a legal right for nonviolent civil disobedience, and they have disrespected the Constitution. So before we negotiate with any terrorist group like the APD, the city of Akron, or the mayor, this is our statement from the organizers on the ground, from the Freedom Block, from Serve the People Akron and from DSA Akron, this is our statement. We are not here to have a conversation when we are under militarized occupation. 
While there are guns pointed at us, tear gas and pepper spray choking us. We are here to seek accountability. Residents of Akron and surrounding communities are being hurt and are dying. The local police have waged war on peaceful protesters and innocent neighbors. It is the police who have escalated every step of the way. Disarm and demilitarize all local police entities and forces. We cannot have negotiations or conversations until there is immediate and long-lasting accountability. Reverend Green then issued a list of 12 demands put together by a coalition made up of the Freedom Bloc, the Akron chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, and Serve the People Akron. We were directed to a spokesperson from Serve the People Akron who asked to have her name held due to safety concerns, and she described some of the demands being made. They include firing and then prosecuting the eight officers who shot Jalen Walker and the establishment of an independent Truth and Reconciliation Commission to investigate his murder. So we want to create uh, citizen-led committees and commissions to do the investigating. We cannot rely on the police department to investigate itself or even the Department of Justice. I mean, we need outside citizen-run eyes on this. So there's no bias. There's no more protecting. Akron had its time. That time is over. It has to go to the people now because we can't trust them to be accountable and to be honest with us. The fact that they're still withholding the names of these officers who committed this crime is disgusting. Quite frankly, like it's, it's a slap in the face to the family and all the previous victims of police violence in this city. The demands also outline how protests should be managed going forward. Specifically right now, I would say the one of the best things they could do is the abolition of the deployment of tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets. We're not even allowed to use these in the military on people uh, per the Geneva Convention, but here we are using them on our own citizens. They're specifically targeting medics and the people who are leading a lot of these demonstrations. Some of the demands being made are ones that were being put forth even before Jalen Walker was shot and they have to do with the future of the Akron Police Department itself. Activists are calling for a citizen-led commission that will study and strategize the defunding of the police and a redirection of those resources into community-identified needs through a participatory budget process. It has been suggested before, but I think this is an issue that's really going to highlight it from here because Akron's mayor, Dan Horrigan, gave the police a raise in their budget last year. And they are continuously getting raises and getting more money to buy equipment to militarize themselves. Like they just recently bought a Bearcat, an MRAP. It's all gentle use out in the field in the military. And then we bought it for dirt cheap here in Akron. And for what? It is, has only been used to terrorize people. They brought it out uh, at one of their little police demos to try to boost morale and positive uh, image of the police here in Akron. And that was the only time now that something's happening. They're rolling this thing out left and right. And it's, it has no use. There's no reason for this. This money could be going to, you know, affordable housing with assisted housing for a lot of our houseless or like getting regenerative food forests here in Akron so people have access to food and we are resilient towards climate chaos, you know, the big looming thing. Like, we don't have time to be dealing with these racist, violent officers. We have other issues in the city that we can unite around. The family of Jalen Walker have announced a press conference to take place today at 2.30 p.m., during which they will provide details on his funeral service. Ahead of that, through their legal team, they released this statement, quote, After a weekend of protests and more violence from police, Jalen Walker's family is calling for an immediate end to the aggressive, violent tactics being used by the Akron police against protesters. They also are calling for all curfews to be lifted and an end to the city's efforts to blame Jalen for the horrific and unjustified shooting that took his life. Close quote. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
You're listening to Monday Morning QB. I'm Sue Goodwin. Hundreds of people braved the rain this weekend to once again voice opposition to the recent Supreme Court decision eliminating federal abortion rights. Political leaders have urged concerned citizens to vote, but many activists aren't content to express themselves solely through the ballot box. Some are even willing to risk arrest to defend their values. Reporter Asia Beckham has more. This was a chant heard this past Saturday when more than 1,500 protesters gathered for a women's march at the White House to demand that President Joe Biden and his administration declare a national public health emergency two weeks after the Supreme Court struck down a ruling. One day prior to the march, Biden signed an executive order that directs the Department of Health and Human Services to protect and expand access to abortion services, which includes allowing for safe out-of-state travel and access to federally approved medication. Also, the order directs agencies to educate medical providers and insurers about how and when to share patient information with authorities. Biden urged Americans to show up to the polls to vote during November primaries. And I quote, the only way to fulfill and restore that right for women in this country is by voting, said Biden. In November 2022, all 435 House seats and 35 out of 100 Senate seats are on the ballot. 26 out of 50 states will elect governors. Women's March Executive Director Rachel O'Leary Carmona said, and I quote, Yesterday was a good first step, but it is just that, a first step. We know there are limits to President Biden's authority, but we want him to push that authority to the limit. Until the fall elections, the organizers are using the tagline, the summer of rage. Nearly 1,500 jail support forms were signed by protesters who showed up willing to risk potential arrests to demonstrate in the pouring rain. Here's the voice of one male who wasn't able to sign a form because the Women's March ran out after 1,500 were signed, according to one representative that I spoke with at the jail support tent. Yeah, there were 1,000 forms. Um, by the time I got to the 1,000 forms were gone. So. I got here with a group of people. Uh, so, you know, we obviously said we're going to support each other in that process. Tell me a little bit, you know, um, let's say the obvious, you're a male. I'm a male. I'm an African-American male. And why did you decide to come out and support this? Well, I look at Roe versus Wade as kind of like being the floor to all the other decisions that have been made. So when you start talking about you know, LGBTQTA rights, you start talking about gay marriage, you start talking about interracial marriage, you start talking about Brown versus education. And frankly, Clarence Thomas, he already said that we're going to go after those decisions too. I mean, so in the way it's looking, if they start getting you know, gay marriage, if they get the rights for the LGBTQA um, community, if you get interracial marriage, I mean, basically, we're back in the 60s. Do you have any daughters, by any chance? I have two daughters. Can you tell me a little bit about your daughters, the conversations that you've had with them? Well, one of my, one of my daughters is gay. Um, and my other daughter, I mean, she's very much supports the LGBTQA community. But, you know, this part of the reason why I do this kind of stuff is that, you know, it's because I care about what happens to them. I mean, right now they have less rights than their mom and my mom. Right. So that's really concerning for me. According to Gut Matter Institute, 26 U.S. states are likely to ban abortion, which will largely impact black and low income people. A woman traveled from New York by bus. Here's what she describes about the moment that activists stood in front of the White House. Women did it. They were celebrating. They immediately were tying their bandanas to the fence and the security started taking them off. They realized that. And so then every woman took their bandana and rushed to the fence all at the same time to put them back up. Then they were chanting, you know, my body, my choice, legal abortion now. And they were linking arms. They were sitting and it was pouring rain at that point. It was the wettest it had been the whole day. Um, but that didn't stop anyone. Again, the sisterhood is just so stark. Like it's, it feels really good to be in the streets fighting for the lives and futures of women. You could tell that the rain couldn't slow them down. And the beautiful green showing the solidarity with the Latin American sisters who have already, who've been waging this struggle for years. 
Um, it was just a really beautiful sight. Um, and yeah, uh, it lasted about an hour and a half, I think, out there in the rain in front of the White House. And then um, they realized they weren't going to get arrested. I think um, it might have been a little too embarrassing for these D.C. cops. I actually don't know the exact reason why they didn't arrest. But there was a lot of women, I think more than they expected, doing the, the sit-in. And, it, yeah, I think it would have been too embarrassing for them to arrest all those women. It's not just women, but men and differently gendered people, too, who actually do not want to live in a post-row America, who actually are sick at the thought of of young girls like the one in Ohio having to travel for being two days past the six weeks to get her abortion. And just that, that's, that this is the new normal. This cannot become the new normal. And another woman who's protested against Poland's abortion ban spoke with us as she held her eight and a half year old daughter's hand while in the crowd. Poland restricts abortions with the exception that the mother's life or health is in danger or if the pregnancy is a result of rape or incest. So we're just here and we're traveling to another place just in an hour. So we just came here to see what's going on. I hope it goes peaceful. I hope nobody gets arrested. It's not worth it, I would say, um, especially if you're a woman. But courage, you know, don't give up. I'm from Poland originally and we had these marches two years ago and we have exactly the same issue the Supreme Court of Poland deciding about you have no rights to abortion. So I know it very, very well. I'm fortunate to live in Belgium when I don't have these issues, but I know it deep to my core. So, so at one point you were marching in Poland yeah. about the abortion, and I'm sort of wondering a lot about that. Even, you know, folks from um, Ukraine coming over and they were taken advantage of by the soldiers. Yeah. Uh, they were looking yeah. for an abortion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how was that experience sort of protesting for those rights back in Poland? So we had a persisting issue before anyway. So we came from restrictive abortion law to a point where it's even more restrictive. So it was going from bad to very bad. It's not like here, you had the right and then you're going to a point where you have no right. Let's say conservative countries like Ireland and Malta going, taking a step forward a few years ago in Europe and then maintaining the rights. So I don't know, I mean, it's very worrying for me and for my daughter, maybe not for me, but for my daughter. Where, where are we gonna end up? in 10, 20 years, everything getting smaller, going from globalized world to a smaller world, we're actually, you know, you're totally vulnerable politically, economically, and on the healthcare issue. So I don't know, honestly, I don't know. NPR reported that signage was posted in a portable bathroom at the Medica border crossing in Poland with phone numbers for gynecology hotline. Also, another gynecology hotline phone number was posted that's staffed by a Ukrainian doctor. While political decisions may seem complicated for young listeners, here's what they're gathering from the news and their parents. I spoke with this 10-year-old. So my mom wanted us to be part of a protest and also so that we could fight for women's rights and actually be part of a protest because we've only seen some on the news. So, yeah. What, what conversations are you having with your daughter and son? My daughter is still young. How old are they? Uh, she just, she's six today and so we were taking her here for her birthday because I just felt like that was very important. Like, like my mom fought for this right, and it's already felt heavy the past few years, and it just keeps getting stripped away uh, little by little. And I, I never know she may need it one day, and I want her to be able to have access to the care that she needs wherever she lives. So it's summertime right now; schools let out. But the, are the kids this? Or are they like talking about what's happening on the news and why are folks wearing green all the time? I haven't really heard anybody talk about all of this. What do you think might happen in the next hour or two? I think this protest will still be going and I think everybody will still be fighting for their rights. And also I think that the president, since he has like practically all the control, I think he should bring back the law. Bring back the law that protects women's rights. I'm Kaylin, and I'm 10 years old. This is Asia Beckham with Monday Morning QB.
midterm elections are steadily creeping closer, and much attention is being paid to the impact of the Dobbs decision and January 6th hearings on voter turnout. One perennial election issue, voter disenfranchisement, has become somewhat forgotten amid the hubbub. According to the Sentencing Project, over 5 million people were unable to vote in the 2020 presidential election because of a felony conviction, a legacy of the Jim Crow-era South, and a testament to the continued difficulty passing federal election reform. Campaigns to restore the vote to formerly incarcerated people have persevered in recent years, according to Benjamin Barber, Democracy Program Coordinator at the Institute for Southern Studies and a contributor to the Facing South publication. Barber writes that at least 13 states expanded the franchise to some degree between 2016 and 2020, helping to reverse racially disparate restrictions on ballot access. But some extremely harsh restrictions remain, including in Mississippi, where voting rights can only be restored through direct action by the governor or state legislature. Now, Mississippi is the only state in the nation that typically requires you know, this type of action from the legislature uh, to restore voting rights. You know, recently during the 2022 state legislative session, lawmakers took some action to restore voting rights to just five people. And, you know, while only 185 Mississippians convicted of felonies have had their rights restored by the legislature since 1997. So you can only imagine that that wide gap that we see between restoration efforts and those who uh, still haven't regained their right to vote since this period. You've written about this GOP-sponsored bill in Mississippi uh, that would have made it easier to restore the right to vote to former felons, and it was uh, vetoed by the Republican governor, Tate Reeves, in the state. Nationally, I think we've seen some fault lines open up in the Republican Party, you know, around Trump and around his claims of electoral fraud. Are there also meaningful differences within the party around the issue of restoring the franchise, or is this sort of disagreement an isolated event in Mississippi? I think we've seen, uh, you know, a variety of actions from, it varies by state, if you will. Um, So you you see, uh, you know, some governors who have this uh, harsh stance that upholds felony disenfranchisement laws that prevent people who have come back to their communities from regaining their rights. But you also have governors who are working in a bipartisan way to really move the needle on this issue. So for instance, in Virginia, uh, the Republican governor there recently restored rights to over 3,400 people. So I think what we're really seeing is, is that this issue is really becoming a more bipartisan issue, especially especially among the general public. It might not necessarily be as bipartisan among you know the politicians at this period in time, but it, I think it's definitely reached a point where there's widespread bipartisan support across the country and even in the South. I think you're, you're seeing uh, people are realizing that it's, it's wrong to just kind of dismiss people in this type of way and dismiss their rights, especially when they've already paid their debt to society. And really, they're just they're still being excluded from the political process that impacts them on a day-to-day basis. So it's, it's my understanding that you know, there's still sort of appeals happening around that Mississippi law. You've also written about a similar situation in North Carolina, where there's back and forth around a law that was intended to make it easier to reenfranchise former felons. How likely are these cases to be decided before the midterm elections in November? And what impact could they have if they are decided in time? Yeah, um, so I think decisions on these cases are expected in the coming months. And, you know, there is some evidence that shows that these efforts could potentially have some impact on the outcome of the election. So a 2019 study uh, found that laws reenfranchising people impacted by this issue had a positive impact on the vote share of Democratic candidates and turnout rates of minority voters in the U.S. House elections. But even beyond that, I think, you know, along with the electoral benefits of these efforts, it is also important to overturn these laws to really start the process of removing the stain of racial discrimination on our electoral process. And so, you know, this would ultimately lead to a more inclusive and proactive democracy that encourages participation and more engagement. So I think, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've really seen this, this trend from the Republican Party that really tries to curb voter turnout and limit who can and can 
uh, participate in elections. And so I think this law, these policies really follow that pattern that has been a decade long strategy to kind of undermine elections and undermine turnout in these elections that would ultimately lead to more engagement, more participation, and a more proactive and inclusive voting population and electorate. You know, as we've been talking about, clearly the this political fight around restoring the vote is currently existing on a state level, a state-by-state basis. And it, this seems to be in large part due to the fact that the democratic effort on a federal level to um, pass a voting rights bill, which included uh, restoration of voting rights, did did not work at all. I mean, it's everything is being stymied by the the threat of a GOP filibuster. So I'm curious in the in the long run, is the goal still to establish a federal standard around um, reenfranchisement? And if so, is there like a prospective timetable for that? Yeah, well, I think it definitely should be. You know, what we saw earlier this year in January, Democratic lawmakers were were really unable to overcome the threat of a a GOP filibuster that would have passed uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, which was the major pro-democracy bill that you mentioned. And it, you know, it would have offered so many progressive voting rights reforms. And one of that is what you mentioned was the, the one national standard for restoring rights by mandating that a person's right to vote could not be denied or abridged because that individual has been convicted of a criminal offense. And so, you know, that's powerful language that would really overturn some of these laws in some some of the more resistant states that haven't made as much progress on this issue. So I definitely think there should be some more uh, congressional action on on this issue. But I I do believe uh, we shouldn't discount the action that we've seen in the state as well. Um, So, you know, the movement to overturn disenfranchisement laws, as you mentioned, have really been focused on the states. Right now, over 5 million people were disenfranchised in the 2020 election, but that is actually a 15% uh, decrease from the 2016 election. And that is largely due to these actions that we've seen in state legislatures, uh, from state governors and from voting rights organizations on the ground pushing for for change. So what do we see from 2016 to 2020? So we saw at least 13 states, uh, you know, that expanded to some degree voting rights for people who were formerly convicted of felonies. And, you know, this included the southern states of Alabama, Florida, Kentucky, uh, Louisiana, and Virginia. So many of these laws that require state action from the governor or the legislature, we've really seen movement on this issue. And I would also mention, you know, it was really a combined effort going back to 2018 with Amendment 4 in Florida. You really saw a combined effort of on-the-ground grassroots organizers, state lawmakers, and other voting advocacy organizations pushing for this amendment to really overturn these laws so that so many people would regain their voting rights back and regain their position back into the political system. Lastly, it seems to me that that efforts to restore the franchise have focused almost exclusively on formerly incarcerated people, right? Ex-felons, folks who have served their time and are now out either on probation or having finished probation parole. But what about currently incarcerated people? I mean, is, is there not like a racial justice imperative to extend political rights to all prisoners, both former and current? You know, indeed, I would say there definitely is. Um, there are some actions that are actually moving to grant people who are currently incarcerated their political rights back, their voting rights, because as I mentioned earlier, they're still being impacted by the same system that has locked them up, uh, that has put them incarcerated. So I think it is important for them to have a say within the system that is still being impacted on a day-to-day basis. So I think you're, you're definitely right. When we talk about voting rights, uh, when you talk about, you know, the meaning of citizenship, the meaning of political participation, the meaning of equal rights, you know, for those who have historically been excluded from taking part in these freedoms and rights, it is important to kind of center them in this discussion to ensure, uh, you know, that we wipe away any stain of discrimination, any stain of inequality, and any stain of simple unfairness because of a system that refuses to grant you back the rights that are inherently yours. So I think, you know, it's important to have that as a focus of our conversation as well. That's Benjamin Barber, Democracy Program Coordinator at the Institute for Southern Studies. Visit facingsouth.org to read more of his work, including a recent piece on mobilizing Southern voters for the midterms. 
For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bengert-Drowns. In his newest book, historian and anti-racism scholar Dr. Ibram X. Kendi explores how kids at different ages experience race and how we, as the adults in their lives, need to talk to them about race. The book is titled How to Raise an Anti-Racist. And in an interview with NPR, Kendi explained what makes the conversations so necessary if we want to empower children to challenge the racist narratives embedded in their own culture. There's this perspective that we have a choice in the matter. When I say we, parents, teachers, caregivers, have a choice in the matter as to whether we're going to say anything to our children about race. But we're saying things to our kids about race when they look at their books or they look in their curriculum and almost everyone is white. We're, we're saying who we value. Even though we don't say anything about the race of those, of those authors, of those people, we're speaking to our kids about race. Author Ibram X. Kendi talking about his most recent book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. As we have done in previous shows, we bring the voice of our dear news director, Askia Mohammed, back to the airwaves. In this interview, first broadcast in 2019, Ibram X. Kendi talks with Askia about how he himself had to relearn what he was taught about race as a child. People are trained in this country to see the problems of racial inequity and injustice as not caused by racist power and policy, but, by, but caused by the inferiorities of a particular racial group. So people are trained to not see the reason why 40% of the incarcerated population in this country are black, even though black people represent about 13% of the population, not the result of, of racist policies and, and, and the racist ideas of, 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 of the people operating within the criminal justice system, but because black people themselves are hypercriminal, are violent. Um, not that the races are com committing relatively equal levels of, 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 of crime, not that um, when you have disproportionate poverty across the world, you're going to have disproportionately higher levels of, of violent crime. Um, not that the problem is unemployment <laughs> or, or poverty, um, that the problem, in, in fact, is something wrong with black people. And, and I think we've been trained to, in many ways, to, to, to think that way. And of course, being anti-racist is com overcoming those, 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 those ideas. You confess that when you were a teenager, mm -hmm. you swallowed those ideas yourself. How did they get into you? I think a combination of, so my parents are sort of babies of the Black Power Movement. And um, they, when they were, um, younger, uh, they recognized that the central problem was, of course, racism, racial problem. But as they started to move into the middle class, like other babies of the Black Power Movement and Civil Rights Movement, like some of those babies, they, they began to sort of think that the reason why they moved, the reason why they became members of the Black middle class and other Black people remained poor that the reason why this black metal class existed and other black people remained poor was because of the hard work and ingenuity of members of the black middle class, that, that there was something wrong with black poor people that were leaving them in poverty. That idea became very pervasive uh, within the sort of circles that I was raised in. At the same time, you had Reagan Democrats and Reagan Republicans making the same case that there was something wrong with black people. But at the same time, my parents continued to sort of recognize the, the, the pervasiveness of racism. So in a way, they were teaching me two different things as society was teaching me two different things. So I talk in How to Be an Anti-Racist about this sort of dueling consciousness that sort of I was brought up in. Du Bois. Precisely. Du Bois is, you know, Two boring ideals. Exactly. And, and it's, a, it's an ideal, I think it's a war, it's an internal war that I think black people are still facing. 
So, in your first chapter of your third book, you say racist is not necessarily a pejorative. So, what do you mean by that? So, I think in many ways, white Americans, and, and I think in particular, have been taught by white supremacists, not realizing it, that a racist is a, like a racial slur. That <laughs> it is equivalent to a white person calling a black person the N-word. Well, what black people do is we just call white people the R-word. That, it, that it's meaning that what it encapsulates is, is essentially an attack, uh, a racial attack. Um, Richard Spencer, who coined the term alt-right, who helped organized the Unite the Right rally two years ago in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, and we know the type of violence that that, that rally led to. He, he, once, he once said that racist isn't a descriptive term. It's a pejorative term. It's the equivalent of saying, I don't like you. And But in fact, it is a descriptive term. They want white people to believe that white supremacists want everyday white people to believe that racist is a pejorative, is an attack because they feed on everyday white people's racist ideas. They don't want those people to confront their own racist ideas because they would end up confronting those very white supremacists. And, and, but it's a descriptive term. It describes when somebody is saying something that is racist or, or supporting a policy that is racist. Wow, this is amazing because in my generation, if you wanted to insult a white person, you would call them a cracker, mm-hmm. a peck of wood, and so now a descriptor becomes an insult. Wow, things have really, really changed. They are. And so, and ironically, you know, what do they, what do some white people say in response? Oh, no, I'm not racist. You're racist. So like, it's, it's almost, it's imagining that this is just, you know, you, you saying my mother, you know, you demeaning my mother. So I'm going to say, no, your mother is that way. No, that's not the way, that's not the way this works. You know, racist is a descriptive term that has a definition and it doesn't apply to everybody. You know, the opponents of Donald Trump and Donald Trump can't both be racist. Someone has to be racist and someone has to be anti-racist. And the way we understand that is by defining terms very clearly. Define. So racist is, is someone who is expressing a racist idea or supporting a racist policy with their action or inaction. A racist idea is any idea that suggests the racial group is superior or inferior to another. A racist policy is any policy that yields racial equity. Just by simply saying that a person is expressing racist idea, you're not being racist by saying that a person is expressing a racist idea. No, you're being anti-racist because that's what anti-racists do. And, and so obviously, you know, I can go through the litany of racist things that that, that Trump has said, and I can go through a litany of policies that he supports that creates racial equity, and that is an indicator of someone who is racist. So what is anti-racist then? So it's the direct opposite. So the opposite of, of racist is not not racist. Yeah. That is a term of denial. That's a term of defensiveness. The opposite of racist is anti-racist. So if a racist is someone who is expressing a racist idea or supporting a, a racist policy, then an anti-racist idea is someone who is supporting an anti, expressing an anti-racist idea or supporting an anti-racist policy. If a racist idea connotes notions of racial hierarchy, a racist idea connotes notions of racial equality. If a racist policy reproduces racial inequity, an anti-racist policy produces racial equity. There's no in-between that. There's no neutrality. Um, and, and so there's no neutrality when it comes to people, policy, and ideas. While we're defining you uh, and talking about hierarchies, you say that to be feminist is anti-racist mm-hmm. and that to be anti-racist also tears down the gender hierarchies. How are those related? So I think that, for instance, as a black male, as you know, you have some black men who will say that black men are equal to white men, but black women are not equal to white women. (laughs) And, And they'll say that because they somehow believe uh, 
and they express sexist ideas. They, you have some black men who will recognize the ways in which um, white men are oppressing black men, but not recognize the ways in which white men are oppressing black women. When I say racial groups, I've been using the term racial groups, I'm not talking about black people and, and white people specifically, even though that those are racial groups or races. Black men and black women are two distinct racial groups that have been subjected to do distinct sets of racist ideas that have been subjected to do different distinct, distinct sets of racist policies. And so when black men consume racist ideas that have been created for black women, they are expressing racist ideas. When black women do the same for black men, they're expressing racist ideas too. We can't the irony about racist ideas is they not only create hierarchies between races, they create hierarchies within races. And that's our show for today. Support Monday Morning QB by visiting wpfwfm.org or wbai.org and becoming a monthly sustainer. Thanks to our engineer, Mike Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest gracefully, Eskia, and thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington. Mm-hmm.